2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10 adds another very important point to the, uh, the case Paul has been making under the inspiration of the Spirit as we have been working our way through 2 Corinthians. The master theme, strength and weakness of the book, arises because in Paul's absence, his his character, and more significantly, his message had come under a bit of attack there in the church at Corinth. There were those who had arisen to say that the, the gospel of grace was all well and good, but, but seriously now, what we, what we really have to do in order to be made right with God is earn our salvation through, through various applications of a distorted version of the Old Testament law. That obedience is the key to one's eternal destiny. And like all good lies, it smelled a little bit like the truth. But Paul had made it clear in his time at Corinth that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of the work of Christ on the cross alone, and that there was nothing we contribute to our salvation, as others would later say, but the sin that makes it necessary. That being said, that being crucially true, Every child of God, and this is the argument he's been making through chapter four and now into chapter five. <clears throat> Every child of God, once they come to be a child of God, by grace alone, through faith alone, is given a, a life's defining sort of ministry assignment that impact for the kingdom of God is anticipated and blessed and allowed in the life of the child of God. We are enlisted. He's just verses away from using that, that, that verse that, that I, I have come to find so near and dear to my heart that we are ambassadors for Christ. But along and along in this unfolding of our, our mission we must complete in this life, this ministry we've been given. He now, he now adds to his argument a reminder, not the first time he's raised this issue, even in writing to the church at Corinth, as we'll see, it's a very similar theme to something that was dealt with in 1 Corinthians chapter three. We will all stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And that, that, ultimate reality of, of Christ in, a, in an elevated setting adjudicating the stewardship of his followers is a, is a word picture that was very, very familiar to these first century Corinthians. We first encounter in the New Testament the idea of the, the judgment seat. The Greek word is bima, 
We encounter it when, when Jesus is, is called to judgment in front of Pilate. Uh, governor Pilate was the governor of the Roman province of Judea. And early in the morning of the day that he was crucified, the bema of Pilate, the judgment seat of Governor Pilate, is the place where Christ stood um, and reminded Pilate that, that though Pilate in this moment, it looks like you're judging me, make no mistake. One day you will be judged by me. Paraphrasing, but that's essentially what Jesus said to the Roman governor who then later sentenced him to the cross. Playing, of course, into the glorious will of God the Father. The Bema at Corinth. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. Interestingly enough, the Bema at Corinth is a, is a well-attested, quite specific archaeological location. If you've ever had the privilege of, of visiting archaeological Corinth, and I hope one day you will, um, I have been blessed to have led several groups there. The uh, archaeological site at Corinth is fantastically well-preserved and well-recovered, and the, the judgment platform that is the, the governor's bema for the Roman Empire province of Achaia, largely equivalent to today's southern Greece, the judgment seat in Corinth was a place Paul had been in Acts 18 when he is uh, hauled before the Roman proconsul, the governor of Achaia, Gallio, at the governor's tribune is how the ESV translates the word in that instance. It's the bema. So the, the denizens of Corinth, the members of this church knew, oh, we know what the bema is. We know that Paul knows what the bema is. And this earthly picture is used here by Paul of a, of a greater eternal reality, Christ himself and the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, before I go any further, I need to do something that I, I very rarely do. Um, but this is an instance where, uh, and by the way, no human translation, no human translator is perfect. But there's a, the last word of verse 10. The use of the word evil there needs to be addressed. The word translated there, evil, is, is not either of the usual words for great moral evil. Uh, if it matters to you, those Greek words are kakos or poneros, and those words mean morally objectionable, truly evil. The word used here is phalos, which means worthless, not morally evil. Our ESV translators who chose the word evil for the last word of verse 10, by the way, the ESV is a fantastic, trustworthy, remarkably well done English translation of, of works from thousands of years ago. You may trust your ESV Bible, of course. But the reason we have Bible teachers is that we can sometimes point out, I, I, I just think that they got to verse 10 and it was either right before lunch or right before a coffee break or something. 
and they missed it. I would suggest, and it's, it's okay, I hope you write in your Bible, and uh, write a circle around that word evil, and out in the margin, write worthless. If you've got a good study Bible that's got good footnotes, your, your Bible probably already has a footnote explaining that evil here is not a moral evil, and that matters. Because Christians, you will not stand in judgment for your sin. Your moral evils are not what is in view at the judgment seat of Christ, for your sin has already been thoroughly adjudicated and the sentence carried out on the cross of Jesus Christ. And for all who will turn from their sin and trust Jesus Christ by faith, we will never be judged for our sin debt because our sin debt has been entirely paid. The judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment on sin. We'll talk about it more in the moments ahead. But first, Roman numeral one, our intentional aim. Our intentional aim. Letter A, whether home or away. In the passage that Pastor Kerry Robinson covered last week, uh, Paul was, was weaving together this word picture of, of uh, whether we are, we are at home in this present body or away from this present body and thus at home with the Lord. Or whether we are at home with the Lord and thus away from this present body. So the idea of, of at home or away is in whatever state we find ourselves. So letter A, our, our desire to please Jesus is unconditional. In life, you will face any number of varying chapters. You will face any number of, of varying conditions. Things will come and go from your life. Seasons of your life will come and go. Relationships in your life will, to a degree, come and go. Today's bright, shiny, new thing that you have to have will be tomorrow's dust-covered thing in the back of a closet that you don't even remember why you bought. And, and, and thus, as it goes in the flow of life, but at all times and in all circumstances and in all pursuits, we desire to please Jesus. It is unconditional. Letter B, it's supposed to be undistracted. Undistracted. We, we make it our aim. Now, I know that, that modern firearms come in human history a whole lot later than the text of 2 Corinthians. But the verb there, aim, is, is to aim. And I'm a, I am not completely uncomfortable around firearms. I know a little bit. I've spent some time with some people who know a lot. And here's what I know about aiming. It's to be an undistracted activity. Now, earlier in the service, we gave our thanks to those of you who have served, who have gone into harm's way as either members of our armed services or as first responders. Some of those first responders and some of you in the armed services have gone into harm's way with weapons. And you may have had to aim quickly or aim while doing other things. Most of my aiming has taken place on static firing ranges. And I've been taught that, that how I stand matters. 
How I position my upper body matters. How I position my arms and hands matters. How I breathe matters. How I make use of a monocular versus stereo vision. All of these things have impact on my aim. How's your aim? Are you living your life as one whose aim is to please God? You may do all sorts of other things. Life has tons of moving parts. But are the moving parts of your life, I'm talking to the children of the living God, I'm talking to those who have turned from their sin and trusted Jesus Christ by faith. Have you brought every component part of your life all of the other priorities, all of the lesser priorities, have you brought them into subjection to the master priority of pleasing God with your life? Living out the life that he has given you as a child of his. Are you undistracted? Because to please him is our unequaled aim. Many things we may do, this we, this we must do. Our, our, our life is to be his resource for the living out of his plan. Your life's not your own, you're bought with a price, child of God. I love the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> it's a sobering and clarifying book. I recommend if you have never, it's not terribly long, if you've never set aside an hour to read the book of Ecclesiastes from beginning to end in an engaged way, I absolutely recommend the book of Ecclesiastes to you. But cinch up. Because the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, runs a catalog of all the things that we can pursue in life, having himself tried most of them. And over and over again, he says, yeah, I, I, I did that. I did that, I even got really good at that, whatever that is. And at the end of it, I found out that the whole thing was emptiness and chasing the wind. Never chase the wind, I promise you, you've never caught it. I did all that and found out it's emptiness and chasing the wind. So I did all this and found out that too is emptiness and chasing the wind. Over and over again. You say, well, what about that is not depressing. I didn't say the book was giddy. I said the book was clarifying. And the last two verses... The word of God says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. We make it our aim to please him, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. The whole duty of man, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. For God will bring every deed into judgment 
with every secret thing, whether good or evil, for mankind judgment awaits. Our intentional aim, Roman numeral two, our inevitable appearance. Our inevitable appearance, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, letter A on your outline, all and only believers will appear at this judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is the judgment for believers, which leads me to a brief little rabbit chase regarding just a, a rule of biblical interpretation you need to keep in mind. When you see words like all and we in, a, in any, any verse of the Bible, it's important that you consider for a moment the context. We and all are referring to something. You say, well, I know what all is. All is all human beings. No, it's not. All is always defined by its context. We must all appear. He's writing the book of 2 Corinthians to the church in Corinth and the believers of the province of Achaia. If I, if I said to you, let me see, Tuesday. Tuesday is Independence Day. And by the way, I hope you have a great time. Be careful if you do any fireworks. Please don't, don't hurt yourself and, uh, and those sorts of things. But in, Independence Day, if I, said, if I said since Tuesday is Independence Day, we're all coming to the house, we're going to grill hamburgers. I do not mean seven billion people. Be very, very slow to apply we and all. I don't even mean the hundreds of y'all. My house won't hold you and I don't have enough hamburger. You, if, I, if you heard me say that, we're all coming to the house, you would right away think he probably means his family, right? Because you know that we all needs context. Well, here, the we all are believers. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Let her be on your outline. Unbelievers will be judged at the great white throne. It's terrifying. So I decided to take a few minutes and differentiate between those two judgments because it can be a matter of some confusion. Now I want to warn you in advance, this is not all there is to say about these two judgments. This is a flyover survey of the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment of believers, versus the great white throne, the judgment on unbelievers. On your notes, if you, have the, if you have the printed or PDF outline, you'll see I've laid this out like a table. And I'll try to walk through it with a degree of clarity here. For believers, it is the judgment seat of Christ. For unbelievers, the great white throne judgment. It's described in Revelation chapter 20. The last paragraph of Revelation chapter 20, beginning in 20 verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and the sky fled away. He is in his undiminished wrath. He is in his undiminished judgment, his undiminished holiness, so that even the creation flinches and flees in his presence. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Child of God, for you, he has obliterated the record from the books. 
His blood on the cross has destroyed the record of your sin, past, present, and future, removing it as far as the east is from the west. And if you haven't fully come to appreciate that, may you all the more. My friend, if you're here today and you are not in Christ, you have not turned from your sin and trusting him by faith to save you by his grace alone. This is every deed that was less than perfect. There's a lot of them. Every thought that wasn't centered on honoring him, there's a lot of them. Every attitude that wasn't perfectly aligned with his word, there's a lot of those. This is all of that. And they were judged according to what they had done and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the death, dead that were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Nothing breaks my heart more than to hear jokes about hell. Well, at least all my friends will be there too. Eternally in flames, in a lake of molten sulfur, it's not going to matter to you who else is there. All you will know is the seething, searing, unending, undiminished pain of the condemned. Come to Jesus. 10 billion years from now, nothing you have done in this life will matter much. but your response to his invitation that you would turn from your sin and trust him by faith. He has done the work on the cross to save his people from their sin. Someone asked me last week, reading ahead, um, what's the timing of these two judgments? Um, I have to tell you, there's, there's, regarding the judgment seat of Christ, there's a great deal of, of um, there are multiple possibilities. I've always joked that if you, get, if you get three Baptists in a room, you'll have five different end times charts represented by those three Baptists. So I'm not gonna try to debug all that. This line on the table, the timing, the second, the second uh, box down under the title, um, I will step a little bit out of thus saith the Lord and into here's what Russell thinks. I don't want to do that all that often. It's a pretty dangerous business. Neither you nor I can ever afford to confuse. When I look, when I'm reading from God's word and my explanations align exactly with what is in that text, it doesn't matter what you think of me. It doesn't even matter what you think of, of, of what I'm saying specifically. My job is to trail guide you through this word of God. Don't disagree with me when I'm agreeing with Scripture. However, 
when I am opining or editorializing, feel free to disagree with me. I frequently do. I didn't say that. Yeah, you did. Roll the game film. Holy cow, I did say that. I didn't mean it. Anyway, here's what I think. I think the judgment of believers follows after the, after the resurrection and rapture, but before the onset of the millennial kingdom. There's a very brief space there, and that's where I think the judgment of believers happens because I think that we begin to experience our reward during that thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. I could be wrong. The judgment of unbelievers, however, does follow the thousand-year reign. The great white throne comes at the end of the thousand year reign. That's pretty clear in a revelation timeline for what it's worth. Here's what's certain. You're gonna stand in judgment one place or the other. And the judgment of believers is a judgment of stewardship. The judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment on sin. It's a judgment of stewardship. What do I mean? It's, it's serious. It's an evaluation. Russell, there was that moment on a Thursday afternoon that I put before you an opportunity. And you missed it. Now, my grace is sufficient but you sure could have gotten in on something that you didn't get in on. And what could have been would have been much better for you than what was. Because I put before you such an opportunity and you missed it. There are other places in this, in this doctrine of rewards for, for elders who serve faithfully. There's something called the unfading crown of glory. Uh, promised in 1 Peter chapter 5. Imagine. A, a, a reward that, that as of today I feel I can anticipate by his grace. So many other things. My father who sees in secret will reward you openly is said repeatedly in the Sermon on the Mount. But the judgment of stewardship I want, to, I want you to consider what could have been that you didn't get in on. The Bible says in the book of Revelation he's gonna wipe away the tears from our eyes. I think this is where some of those tears will be shed. Wow. Lord, thank you for loving me and I'm sorry I missed out on that. We'll talk more about those degrees of blessing and degrees of pleasure in heaven this week on Beyond the Notes um, as I take a deep dive into the Jonathan Edwards resource that I've put there in the resource list. You know, don't trust anything written after the 1700s and, and uh, just kidding, but, but Edwards is incredible, modern, relevant resource from 1740. For the unbeliever, however, it is a judgment of sin. The books. Every now and then I've heard someone say or I've heard it implied that something like the only thing that causes people to go to hell today is the willful rejection of Christ. That's not true. It's not, it's not biblical and it's not logical. 
Let me start with logical, because that's easy. If the only thing that condemns people to hell today is the willful rejection of Christ, then the most monstrous thing we can do as a church is be involved in sending missionaries to places where the gospel's never been heard. Because as long as they don't hear the gospel, there is no willful rejection of Christ and they're okay, right? You hear how perverted that is? They're going to die and go to hell because of their sin. And their only hope is in the gospel of Christ. But they shall be punished forever for their sin. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthy filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, what things? That catalogs of sin that he just listed. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. They're punished forever for their sin. Their only means of escape is the gospel of Christ, which we ought be urgently about communicating. For the believers at the judgment seat of Christ... The issue is rewards. I'm not going to go there, but I've given you the passage in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the outline. I'm going to try to be conservative with my time. But 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 and 15, just paraphrasing, Paul talks about building on the foundation of what God has given us in the gospel, either with gold, silver, and precious stones or wood, hay, and straw. We either build in a worthwhile way as good stewards of what he has given us or we spend our life on worthless debris. And at the judgment seat of Christ, we will be evaluated. Everyone who's there will be saved. Everyone there is on their way to an eternal blessing of heaven. But there will be a greater atop that blessing for those who have faithfully managed that which God gave them, who have built a life of enduring and eternally significant things rather than the debris of a distracted life. For the unbeliever, the judgment of the great white throne sentences them to hell, and in hell there are degrees of punishment. It's the reflection of the degrees of reward. Now, don't take any comfort in that, unbeliever. The baseline of hell is that fiery lake of molten sulfur, that eternal, interminable burning. But there are those who have made it for themselves even worse. Jesus told the, the uh, villages of Bethsaida that it was going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for them in judgment. Hard to imagine. Hard to imagine. There are degrees of punishment. What's the takeaway? 
I'm gonna go straight to Hebrews 9.27. I've given you some other verses there. May they be edifying for your own study. But here's the takeaway. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, this tent, we've talked about it for several weeks, this body is doomed. This life will end. It is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. Heaven or hell turn on the salvation purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross for all who will repent and believe. Paid for on the cross, proven by his resurrection, provided for all who will believe. Will you not today, if you have never done so before, pass from death to life, from the eternal sentence of condemnation to the eternal glory of heaven. And then you will make it your aim to please him. Then the doctrine of rewards becomes interesting. You don't want to face judgment without Jesus. The biggest mistake most of mankind makes is to believe that somehow in their own effort. they can be okay eternally. And no one who believes that will have that outcome, whether they ever even hear the gospel or not. And it's on us that they would hear the gospel. Say, Brother Russell, if I believe that, I believe I would be more urgent about sharing my faith. And my response to that is welcome to the New Testament. You're supposed to be, above all things, urgently engaged in the sharing of your faith. Live missionally is not a 21st century McGregor set of buzzwords. It is the imperative of the child of God. 